He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Oh, 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 oh. We got a full show for you tonight. Hello, I'm Brian Lilly. Welcome to the program. And um, day after the long weekend. It always seems like a Monday when it's a Tuesday. And I don't know about you, but equipment wouldn't work for me today. Computers crashed. Nothing was quite as it should be. I think because of the fact that I think the machinery had a long weekend as well. But I hope you stay with us over the next couple of hours because we're going to bring you a fantastic show. We're going to speak with <clears throat> we're going to speak with Richard Curland on the issue of immigration. The Trudeau liberals are looking for consultations on the issue of immigration. On that note, the latest on the refugee rush, there is a university in this country that has decided that they want to show the Syrian refugees how welcome they are and and bring them into Canadian life. And do you know what they're doing as part of that? They're separating the boys and the girls during swimming because boys and girls can't see each other during swimming. Isn't that a Canadian value? We'll get into that later in the program. And the conservative leadership race. Have you heard the numbers? Have you heard who is just blowing everybody away in terms of fundraising? We'll get into that with Stephen Taylor, longtime political activist and political watcher and editor over at NewsHubNation.com. And a little bit about social media. There is a social media war going on. Whether you know it or not, whether you're involved or not, the war is coming for you. But first, I want to touch on the issue of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals making a major public policy change by, what are they doing? They are changing the way we appoint Supreme Court justices And they did it in a very liberal way. They announced it in an op-ed in the Globe and Mail. That's right. The official paper of record for Canada's Laurentian elite. Can I get an amen? I mean, we're already talking about people that all think the same way anyway. I still meet folks that will tell me the Globe and Mail is a conservative paper. No, it is not. First off... The Globe and Mail was started as a reformer paper by George Brown. He was on the liberal side. It has been an establishment paper for decades. And you can define establishment in whatever way you want, but if you are the people in charge, they are for you. And today in the Globe and Mail, Justin Trudeau announced some things that are good and some things that are bad. We'll speak with John Robson in a few minutes to get his take because he responded in a semi-establishment paper, the National Post, where he writes a column. And of course, John Robson needs no introduction to us. But what is Justin Trudeau proposing to do? Well, first off, he's saying that the current process for appointing Supreme Court justices is completely opaque. All right, agreed. Completely agree with you on that. But then he turns around and says, here's how we're going to change it. We're going to appoint a body headed by Kim Campbell. Remember that summer intern that was also Canada's first female prime minister? The one that took over from Brian Mulroney and then helped 
reduce the conservatives to two seats? I mean, we can't blame her for it. Old Muldoon had his fair share to do with that. But she didn't help matters with elections are no time for discussing serious issues comments. So this woman that took the conservatives from the largest majority in Canadian history to two seats and then has been living, for the most part, off of liberal patronage ever since because she's truly a liberal and not a conservative, is going to head up Justin Trudeau's committee on picking a short list of Supreme Court nominees. Some will come from government nominees like Kim Campbell, and others will come from areas where it is uh, the law societies or the Canadian Bar Association that put names forward. And they'll drop a short list. But Justin Trudeau said a couple of things in his op-ed that I think are disturbing. He said, The nine women and men who sit on the Supreme Court bench must be jurists of the highest caliber. I agree with that. But then he goes on. They must be functionally bilingual. Hold on. Where are you going to find a functionally bilingual judge from Red Deer? Or a functionally bilingual judge from Shakutami? Or a functionally bilingual judge from Shediac? Or St. Uh, Stephen's, uh, Stephenville, Newfoundland? What he's essentially doing is telling the Laurentian elite who read the Globe and Mail that he only wants them in his club. If you're from Ottawa and Montreal, at the high levels, he wants you in his club. He wants you at the Supreme Court level. Everybody else can go pound sand. You do not deserve to be in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court hears cases of taxation law, criminal law, civil law, immigration law. All of these different forms of law have their own jargon. And Justin Trudeau has just said... You've got to be able to hear cases without the aid of translator or interpreter in all of these areas to be even qualified. By the way, you know what else he said? The current seat that's about to come open on September 1st when Thomas Cromwell, who's from Nova Scotia, when he retires the Atlantic Canada seat, it's going to be open to people from across the country, meaning... To heck with the idea that we've got representation from all parts of the country. Normally, it's one seat from Atlantic Canada, three in Ontario, two from out west, and three from Quebec. The only part that gets to be kept, three from Quebec, because it's in the law. What else does he say that bothers me? He says that once the shortlist of candidates has been compiled by the advisory board, the minister will consult the Chief Justice of Canada. (laughs) Shouldn't be allowed should not be allowed at all because that is a violation of how we operate. So let me, before we go to John Robson, let me refresh. This is wrong because it gets rid of regional representation. This is wrong because it imposes a qualification of bilingualism that should not be there. We should be looking for the best legal minds, not the most bilingual. And it's wrong because we're consulting the person who runs the Supreme Court, on her own legacy, on who she thinks should be there. That, ladies and gentlemen, should not be allowed. It's up to the Prime Minister. The transparency, the consultation, great. Everything else, bad. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. John Robson's next, back in moments.
Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Well, I've laid out my position on these changes to how Supreme Court nominees are going to be put forward. I've recognized the good, that being the transparency, and the bad, and I see that as the ridiculous requirement on bilingualism, the consulting with the Supreme Court justice, and the idea that, well, geographic diversity doesn't matter so much as, I don't know, ethnic diversity. John Robson's got a great piece in the National Post today, though, that finds another fault. John, like me, you're good with the transparency side of changing how Supreme Court nominees are picked, but you take issue with a different matter. Yeah, I mean, and let's be clear to be and be as fair as we can. The transparency is a good thing. Absolutely. It's a major step forward, and it is to be welcomed. What is wrong, though, is that legislators do not get asked to vote. And I think it's particularly revealing because, uh, you know, the prime minister revealed this in an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, which is typical of his non-traditional way of doing things, and I don't mean that in a good way, sort of blurring public and private institutions and so on. I mean, let's just pause on that for a moment, because when Stephen Harper was in power, and I know you're no fan of Stephen Harper and the Conservatives, but when they were in power, if they did anything outside of the parliamentary precinct, outside of Parliament, any big announcement like this, they were denounced as not respecting Parliament. Now we've got the the finance minister uh, announcing deficit numbers at a town hall in Vanier. We've got the prime minister making major public policy changes in an op-ed in the official newspaper of the Laurentian elite. I mean, we could go down a, a longer list, but this they're doing what exactly the same thing they criticized the former guys for doing on on a less frequent basis yeah i think that's quite serious and then and that ties into the fact that at the end of this piece he says the appointment of supreme court justice is one of the most important decisions the prime minister makes it is time we made that decision together but we're not making it together because the public aren't involved at all they're not being asked their opinion they're certainly not being given to say not even through the legislators that we elect because once they actually pick a nominee, then the chair of the nominating committee, who for some reason is going to be Kim Campbell, let's not get into that, and the minister of justice will appear before the common standing committee on justice and human rights to explain the decision. The nominee won't appear, but in a way that allows more pointed questions than you might feel comfortable asking if someone is about to join the Supreme Court. But then the committee isn't asked to vote yay or nay. Instead, they're going to invite members of the House and Senate committees and representatives of all parties in the seats in the House to take part in a Q&A session with the nominee moderated by a law professor. It's like something that's reality television in the middle I, of all of this. I mean, in fairness, Stephen Harper did try and open it up a bit as well in non-traditional ways, and that included for several nominees, but not all, allowing a Commons committee to question them. Now, they didn't get to vote up or down, but they got to question them, but it was the it was the committee themselves that ran the show, not moderated by a law professor. Exactly. That is such a, an elitist touch, any worthy of Hillary Clinton. But even more importantly, we are now in a position where the judiciary is the most powerful branch. It is getting close to being unchecked. There is nothing that can be done about the Supreme Court, uh, and yet they're not even asking legislators to agree that a certain person should wield this power, let alone giving them any effective veto over it if it is exercised irresponsibly, and I'd like to bring back the power of impeachment, among other things, and say if, a ju- if judges start to make excessively fantastical pronouncements, it should be able to be removed by a vote, two-thirds of the House and Senate say. But at the very least, if you want it to be opened up to the people, 
not just to gaze through a bulletproof glass and go, oh, that's what it's about. So even that's better than nothing. But to really open it up to us, legislators are the key with which we unlock the process. So they should be asked to vote yeah or nay. I mean, it's not as though the majority in the House is very likely to turn down a nominee chosen by the Liberal cabinet. But at least MPs would in principle be able to object. And if they didn't object, then later constituents would go to them and say, why did you vote for this person? Let me ask let me let me ask you quickly about some of my my problems with it. Um, bilingualism, to me, this because the liberals in the past have voted for a fluently bilingual Supreme Court. They they said this has to be there. Well, I'm sorry, but it is a rare find that you can pick somebody from Western Canada, Atlantic Canada, even most of Ontario and parts of Quebec that can hear immigration, taxation, civil cases, criminal cases, constitutional cases. And the jargon that goes with them without the aid of an interpreter or translator. To me, this is limiting the pool in ways that is unnecessary, given the talent that we have in the national capital to deal with these issues. Yeah, and given especially under the court after it hears cases, which hinge on legal issues far more than evidentiary issues at the Supreme Court level, they gather to discuss it. And if there's any possibility that an Anglo member of the court has failed to grasp the subtleties either of the law as written in French or testimony or argument. But, uh, John, John let, 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 explain it to them. There's let, no let me stop you there, though. Let me stop you there, because everyone always assumes it's Anglos that can't understand French. And I'm told that Marie Deschamps, when she was appointed to the court, she's from Sherbrooke in southern Quebec. She could not hear a case in English without the aid of a translator or interpreter and still relied on them throughout her career. So, you know, it can be francophones as well because there is legal jargon in both languages and no court hears cases quite like the Supreme Court in terms of their complexity and breadth. Well, uh, that is true, but um, but I think as a rule, if you meet someone in Canada who is genuinely fluently bilingual, nine times out of ten at a minimum, their first language is French. But it doesn't matter because you're quite right. This should not be a requirement. Um, because to be bilingual, of course, doesn't mean that you speak both languages as, as though they were your, your mother tongue. So you may well get candidates who are bilingual but still need help with French or, indeed, as you say, with English, but their colleagues will give it to them. There is one very important consideration here that you must bear in mind. If they didn't do it, they'd get murdered in the next election in Quebec. The... And that's an important judicial consideration if you're in power. <laughs> Let me ask you about consulting with the Supreme Court Chief Justice. To me, this goes beyond what should be happening. He even quoted her in the op-ed, not that we're all buddies here or anything like that. But yes, he... Um, he quoted Beverly McLaughlin, who really, uh, you know, I think is the woman who would be queen, that um, if we are to fully meet the challenges of judging in a diverse society, we must work toward a bench that better mirrors the people that judges. Really, so they shouldn't all be rich, successful, Lorenzo elitist then, should they? I mean, we should have some rednecks <laughs> on the court. You know, are you kidding me? The point is to have people who all look different but all think the same way. Um, and Beverly McLaughlin is one of these people who will certainly endorse that. And, of course, I'd like to you know, go to her and say, well, the prime minister says the process used to appoint justices is opaque, outdated, and in need of an overhaul. So clearly you and your colleagues were appointed by an illegitimate process. And we need to get people who actually didn't get there the way you did. It's will you like leave? Can, can you leave now? Because she has said before that from where I sit, the process for choosing judges is very good. Well, no, duh, you're the, the, on the bench, right? And that's right. kind of unconscious self-congratulatory chatter 
is just the sort of thing that drives ordinary people around the bend, especially because it's done without any awareness that this is Pilmage Le Brioche, which right. my own fluid flowing word. <laughs> Last 30 Google seconds, John. Thereof. Last 30 seconds. Uh, they're saying this is open to anybody across Canada. Traditionally, it's been one from Atlantic Canada, two from out west, three from Ontario, three from Quebec. Only Quebec has that protection. Now they're saying this is open to anyone. Are they doing away with regional representation, and is that a bad thing? Well, I don't think they are. We shall have to see how the nominations process filters people in practice and whether they worry about this. But I would like to see it open to talent. And, yes, you've got to have three from Quebec because of the civil law tradition. That, that actually makes sense when I say it through clenched teeth. But what they must get rid of more than anything else is the exclusion of the people and their representatives. Then we shall have a truly open nomination process. All right. There you have it from John Robson. You can send me your thoughts beyond the news at CFRA.com, beyond the news at CFRA.com, and we'll open up the phone lines later on in the program. John, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. With Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Justin Trudeau and his liberals want your opinion. But will it really matter? They're opening up public consultations on the issue of immigration and... They're asking some pretty open-ended questions. They've got a, an online survey up right now, and I believe it, I believe it closes this week. Let me just scroll down here. Um, I believe it closes this week. I don't see that on the website, but I believe that is the case. And they're just saying, submit your views on immigration, on strengthening the Canadian fabric, on how many newcomers should we welcome to Canada in 2017 and beyond. How can we best support newcomers to ensure they become successful members of our communities? Do we have the right balance among immigration programs and streams? If not, what priorities should they be? Uh, they ask about unlocking Canada's diverse needs, modernizing our immigration system, and leadership in global migration and immigration. That's one of the subject headings. One man that I've been talking to for oh, more than half a decade now on the issue of immigration is Richard Curlin, because he's a lawyer, but he's also a man that knows more about the immigration system than half the people in the department, if not more. And he joins me now on the line from Vancouver. I, I, I do not blow smoke, Richard. <laughs> yes, sir. You you study the system. You're regularly called as a witness to testify. And uh, you practice out in Vancouver now. But you're originally, you know, one of us Eastern, what do they call us in Alberta? Eastern bastards. You're oh, originally yeah. one of us, but you're out in Vancouver now. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about immigration for the long are we are we able to have a serious adult debate on immigration because once upon a time mm. i remember saying i i wrote a, a column saying the only debate we're allowed in this country is how many more can we bring in and how fast i think we've gotten past that now or at least we did under the previous government i don't know if we'll return to it 
But do you think that we're able to have a, a serious discussion about immigration in terms of levels, in terms of mix, uh, whether it be economic or refugees or parents, grandparents? Are, are we able to talk about proper source countries, or are we still confined? Well, I, I think what is different is the approach. What I'm seeing played out is a nonpartisan approach. It's very rare that Canadian politicians at the federal level open up an immigration debate without a predetermined outcome. And uh, in, in, given the design of the consultation, if you decide to participate and say, we do have too many new people coming to Canada, we do need to be more restrictive. Uh, in the old days, you'd be handed the uh, T-shirt with the word racist on it, and that would be that. However, in the new breed of consultation on a nonpartisan basis, all doors and windows are open for public opinion, either way. And I have not seen that in decades. Uh, what I do see are, uh, are uh, a, a collection of concerted efforts on, on the part of senior uh, political staff in Ottawa at the minister's office, as well as the, the most senior uh, immigration officials in our system, canvassing public views, not particularized public views with the aim of converting votes in uh, strategic marginal swing constituencies, but a, a, a bona fide, above-board, genuine consultation from coast to coast to coast. And it, it's, I, I'm waiting to see the volumes of participants. I'm waiting to see the analytical charts that will be produced as a result of these consultations, and importantly, the distribution uh, regionally of the answers. How many is too many? Where should, we, where should we source our skilled workers? And what do we do to improve refugee outcomes? So, yes, Ottawa is and should be sensitive to immigration failures in uh, our, our, our friends from Western Europe or uh, from the United States. I point out that in those countries, Britain, France, Germany, United States, there's no Canadian experience of an open consultation like this, a yeah. true open consultation. Let me ask you what you mean by failure, because I think I have an idea of what you mean by failure. Mm. Almost open border policy in some countries mm. leading to mass migration that has no bearing on the needs of the host country. And, and control. And, and if you look back... Even Pierre Trudeau, because, you know, James mm. Bissett, who used to be high up in the immigration service, he pointed out to me that Pierre Trudeau, unlike the, the, the Harper guys, they, they kept immigration levels high all through the recession. But Pierre Trudeau used to raise them up and down based mm. on the economy at home. I don't expect that his son's going to do that. I think we are at a permanent high level of immigration and it's going to stay that way. But maybe the mix changes. And, and they've already changed the mix to a degree based on partisan needs. They had a promise to bring in more parents and grandparents, and they're doing that, I think, to the detriment of the economy. 
Um, but in terms of the uh, the ability to to maneuver, is that what you're talking about in terms of failed policies in other countries that they just said, come one, come all, and doesn't matter who you are, what you are, what you think, what you believe? Well, the, the, the things that you have said publicly over the last half decade have taken root, and, and frankly, a lot of that are presently facts on the ground. So well done for that stuff. But what I mean is that, uh, first and importantly, uh, the present government is harvesting uh, the fruit planted by the former government. The former government made the hard political decisions to cap intake in strategic categories, like skilled workers, parents, grandparents, and, and other categories. And that gives this government a lot more wiggle room uh, from an operational standpoint. But what is moving forward, the present government uh, is on the cusp of reporting fantastic processing times of, of many strategic immigration categories due to their initiatives and resource allocation decisions. But we're, we're, we're moving light years ahead of that. We're, I think Canada is poised to deliver what Canada needs for both the heart and the wallet. And what I mean by that is, uh, for the wallet, those are skilled worker, business immigrants, uh, people who will leap into Canada, not as in days past, hunting for jobs, but with jobs in hands, with T1s, already paying taxes. All right, uh, which and, and is a good thing. It is an, a very good thing. It's, it's an evidence-based approach to immigration. That's the Canadian difference. Where the Europeans and the Americans lost it is not just lost control over their own territorial borders, but integration failure. Canada decided to spend money on integration. Improve integration, you reduce social problems, social conflict. And it's worked here to the point that other nations come to Ottawa to learn how we did it. And that's now having that success story, uh, we, we, we tighten the ship. We, we tighten the selection and the control features of Canada's immigration system, and that's why we're having the consultation now. Because in the past, we were working with a mallet. Going forward, we're working with a surgeon's scalpel. Precision is going to be the new order. We still have, and there's debate in the United States on immigration due to some comments from Donald Trump about mm bringing in people from countries that are, uh, or blocking people from countries that are, uh, I don't know, beset by Islamic terrorism. And, and I look at our top source countries, and Pakistan is still one of the top. Iran is one of the top. And I, I sometimes look at that and I think, are those the best places that we could be drawing in our top five source countries? And the difference is this. I explain this to many, many people all over the country. I say, look, our, our, we do not engage in immigrant selection from those particular countries blindfolded. A lot of energy, resources, and skill ensures Canada's safety. That's job one. And, by the way, the people who do come here from those countries come here because they don't like those countries. They want to live 
uh, under a system of Canadian values. They reject theocratic values. That's yep. why they packed up the I, family. I was stopped by a Palestinian immigrant who didn't come here from uh, Palestine, the Palestinian territories that long ago, who stopped me in the street on the way over here today to say, thank you for what you do and keep speaking the way you do about immigration because it's a load of BS what I keep hearing elsewhere. And you know me, Richard. I am yeah. not anti-immigrant. My parents are immigrants. My family is immigrants. But we've got to make sure that we're open-eyed about how we do things. And, and here's the heart-wrenching anecdote I personally experienced. I helped Somali refugees uh, in Montreal attain status. It was not a cakewalk. Two years later on Sherbrooke Street, I'm watching a demonstration, an anti-Israel demonstration, and the Somalis were there, permanent residents, and, and expressing, as is their right, uh, uh, to protest. And they, their eyes met mine, and I looked at my shoes, and they looked at their shoes, Three, four years later, they came to me to apologize. And even if people come here with anger in their hearts, ultimately, living the way we do, the anger dissipates. Canadian values cling to them. Only if we stand up for the Canadian values. In about half an hour's time, Richard, I'm going to be speaking to a reporter who's broken a story about a university trying to show how welcoming we are to Syrian refugees, but... They're doing it with Sharia-style rules of saying boys and girls have to be segregated, especially when it comes to swim time. That, that's not standing up for the Canadian values, and that's not, that's not saying, hey, welcome, here's how we do things. That's saying, welcome, let's do things the way you did in your old country. And that we, we've got to watch for that at every turn, I think. Sounds like a sink or swim answer. <laughs> oh, bad pun. <laughs> Richard, thanks for the time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Don't go away. We've got that story of the Sharia swim coming up. I've got a story for you about how Trudeau is failing refugees. You won't believe this one, but coming up next, the F-35? Is it taking flight? This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We've been hearing for a long time that the F 35 is a failure, that it can't fly, that it's not the right jet for Canada, that's, you know. We've just we've got to buy a Super Hornet or we've got to buy a Eurofighter or we've got to buy anything but the F-35. We need a an open competition, not a sole source contract. This plane ain't going to fly. Look, the whole issue of sole source contract, we were part of the selection process that began with several companies back in the 90s. This was not a sole source contract, and that's a false argument. As for the argument that it cannot fly, well, the United States military has now declared the F-35 to be wait for it, combat ready. That's right. The U.S. military has now declared both species of the F-35, the F-35A and the F-35B, to be combat ready. Earlier today on Ottawa Now, Chris Sims, filling in for Evan Solomon, spoke to Jack Sizzler about this very exciting announcement. 
I've got the press release in front of me, and it's it's very uh, colorful, and it says, uh, friends, you know, he's been declared combat ready today by General Hawk Carlisle, commander of the Air Combat Command. Can you please explain to our listeners here in Canada's capital what that means for the U.S. Air Force? Well, first, uh, our congratulations goes uh, to the U.S. Air Force for reaching this milestone, and especially to the airmen that made it possible. But what it means for the Air Force is that if called on, uh, the U.S. Air Force now has the capability to take this aircraft to theater and deploy it in combat operations. So does that mean it's going to go? It's obviously up to the U.S. Air Force when they actually do that, but that means that the F-35 is now ready to go. For both the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Air Force, uh, huh. they have both declared initial operational capability for the aircraft, so they, they both have that capability to deploy should the National Command Authority ask them to. Jack Chrysler, I'm speaking with him right now. He's vice president of the F-35 business development at Lockheed Martin. Mr. Chrysler, what does this mean for Canada? Are you hopeful that now because our very closest and our best ally, the United States of America, because the U.S. Air Force uh, has said this is now combat ready, do you think that this will help get the fighter jet approved for combat and purchased up here by the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, as you said, Chris, uh, Canada remains a partner in good standing on the JSF program. And uh, what we're looking forward to is being able to compete uh, for the fighter replacement uh, program there in Canada. We're very confident that the capability that this aircraft brings, as well as the industrial benefits that the program brings, uh, would be a, a winning solution in Canada. Give us your best explanation for people who are listening who, who aren't engineers, who aren't jet fighter pilots. I know those, those people are rare. Explain for our listeners uh, right now here on 580 CFRA, if you could please, why is the F-35, in your position and opinion, the best fighter jet to replace what we have up here, which are CF-18s? They're, they're aging fighters. Uh, they're old by some standards. However, our men and women in the armed forces keep them in tip-top shape. They're, they're under constant monitoring and repair, and they fly and fight very well, according to all of the folks that I've spoken who have ever flown the, F, F, the F-18. Why is the F-35 the best thing to replace them? Well, the, the threat is changing in the world, uh, Chris. We're now faced with double-digit SAMs deployed all over the world and in areas that we are jointly deployed uh, together, being the Middle East uh, uh, as we speak. And those threats uh, are advanced compared to fourth-generation aircraft, and this is the world's only fifth-generation multi-role aircraft. It combines not only the, the stealth and the survivability that stealth brings, but also sensor fusion, uh, 360 degree situational awareness uh, and just the ability to take advantage of the information that this aircraft is gathering and making the pilot uh, a manager of the strategy as opposed to a tactician and an operator of the mechanics of the aircraft. Now, what are some of a lot of people are saying that it's costing too much money, that uh, we're moving on to drone warfare. I've heard a lot of people say that. They say, you know what, the future, it doesn't belong to manned or uh, womaned, if you use that term, I just use the term manned, uh, of manned aircraft, that we're going to be using uh, drones much more often now and in the future, and the need for having an actual human pilot with all the risks associated with losing that beloved person in that cockpit is no longer needed. What do you say to folks who say, we don't need this because we can use drones? Obviously, drones and unmanned vehicles have become a part of, of the, the process. However, the U.S. Air Force and its allies intend to use this aircraft uh, 
as their primary fighter for the next 40 to 50 years. Uh, the U.S. Air Force has already indicated that they plan to operate this aircraft until 2070. Fascinating. Now, what would you, if you had, uh, the liberals are still deciding because, of course, they campaigned on this during the last uh, federal election here in Canada. They said, you know what, it's, it may not be the, the right fighter jet for the Canadian Armed Forces, for the Royal Canadian Air Force to have. Uh, we're going to take a look at other competitions. I've tried to explain to people that uh, the Joint uh, Strike Force competition itself was a competition. I remember vividly watching, actually a couple of times, The Battle of the X-Planes, which was a fascinating documentary, which took a look at how Lockheed Martin went up against uh, Boeing, and they competed for who would invent and develop and market the now what we know as the F-35. What would you say to folks who are listening who say, we need to shop around? Would, what would you say to them? Well, you're exactly right, Chris. I mean, this was a comp- this was a a product that was born out of a competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the partners were later uh, invited to participate in the generation of the requirements that made the final made the final product. And I would say that uh, if you just kind of look at this summer and the statements by not only the U.S. Air Force but the U.S. Marine Corps uh, between the Dutch deployment, uh, Riyadh Farnborough, U.S. Air Force declaring IOC, and the results we're seeing coming out of the red flag exercise. Uh, just as a testament to the maturity and the effectiveness of the airplane. Fascinating. For for anyone who's listening who wants more information on this, where should they go uh, to read up on the, the topics you're bringing up when it comes to the current generation of the F-35, if they have any questions about this fighter plane? So the best place to go is F-35.com. It has a compilation of, uh, of customer-generated data as well as uh, information and links to uh, events as well as testimony from uh, the operators of the aircraft. So it's a very good resource to to get the facts about the program. And I recommend you listen to my interview with test pilot Billy Flynn. Spoken with Billy many times. This is a pilot who was an F-18 baby, you might say. He came up with the F-8 uh, CF-18 program in the Canadian Armed Forces in the Royal, what's now the Royal Canadian Air Force. Once again, he flew flew those planes for years. Now he's the test pilot for the F-35. Flies out of an area just outside of Washington, D.C. I believe it's in Maryland. Goes up against all the other fighter jets. All the other jets that are, are recommended that Canada consider. And he says he can go up with the heavier payload. He goes faster than them. He outperforms them. At every turn, Denmark did a full study. They had questions, just as Canada did, about the cost overruns, about the delays. So they did a full study, and in every category found out that the F-35, and they published this study publicly, the F-35 was the plane to beat in every single category. Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have said they're not going to buy it, but... I will point out that at the end of June, they made another payment to keep Canada in the F-35 program. So maybe this will be one of those election promises that they break and that they break for good reason. I'm Brian Lilly. When we come back, I'll bring you one story of, well, the refugee rush that Justin Trudeau brought in hurting families on the ground. Then we'll bring you the story of Canadian values being put aside in favor of political correctness 
Sharia swims for refugees out west. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Right now on CNN, the Clinton News Network, all the Donald Trump news they can fit in denouncing the man that, let's face it, does enough trouble to his own campaign, scoring own goals like today. What was with going after the woman and the baby? Why'd he do that? Why did he have to score an own goal? Now, as far as this whole thing about the Khan family over the weekend, as I was writing about over at Truth Revolt, and it's truthrevolt.org, or you can find it in my Facebook feed from time to time, the main networks, and this is just the main networks, not counting the cable networks like CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, or MSLSD, as Mark Levin likes to call it, just on the main networks of ABC, CNN, and NBC, or ABC, NBC, and CBS, just on those three main networks, their newscasts gave 55 minutes of coverage to Donald Trump and the Khan family versus 70 seconds to Patricia Smith and Hillary Clinton. What a difference. What a difference. Now, of course, Patricia Smith's son died serving his country. The Khan family's son died serving his country. Sean Smith, Patricia Smith's son, died in Benghazi, working directly for Hillary Clinton. And she lied to the American people about it. The cons didn't lose their son while Donald Trump was in charge. And yet they have gone nonstop about how the, the cons standing bravely up to Donald Trump, the cons this, the cons that, and then goading Trump into responding, which he foolishly did, of course. And then they just keep churning and churning. Patricia Smith, they gave 70 seconds combined, 70 seconds combined across three main networks versus 55 minutes. And that's in the first four days after each of them spoke. The first four days after each of them spoke, Patricia Smith got 70 seconds on the main three networks. The Khan family got 55 minutes of coverage. That from the Media Research Council. So now today, President Obama, who, I mean, above and beyond Hillary Clinton being in charge during Benghazi, Barack Obama was her boss. You know what he was doing while the Benghazi attack was happening? No word of a lie. This is what the White House said, that, you know, the president wasn't aware of the attack. He was sleeping. Who do you want answering the phone at 3 a.m.? Because it ain't going to be Barack Obama. Ever. But Barack Obama's out today taking on Donald Trump. This is during a media availability with, I believe, the, the president of Singapore. And he says that Donald Trump keeps proving that he's not fit to be president because he's criticizing a Muslim American soldier's family. And that proves he's not up for the job. This isn't a situation where you have an episodic gaffe. This is daily and weekly. 
where they are distancing themselves from statements he's making. There has to be a point at which you say, this is not somebody I can support for president of the United States. You endorsed a woman who was under investigation by the FBI, sir. You were in charge during Benghazi when she lied to the world and the American people, claiming that it was about about a video while emailing her own daughter, her own advisors, and saying that it was an Al-Qaeda-linked group committing a terrorist attack. So shut the hell up about who is and who is not fit to be president. And you don't have to endorse Donald Trump to hold that view. Hillary Clinton, unfit to be dog catcher, never mind president. Now, speaking of being unfit, the whole issue of the rush to bring in 25,000 refugees, I've been saying for a long time, is a Justin Trudeau vanity project. And while there was time for selfies and photos, he was all about it. He was all about being there. But since then, we rushed in 25,000 people faster than the host communities could accommodate them. Vancouver, Halifax, Toronto, Ottawa. I'm trying to remember all the others that said, hold on, you've got to slow down. You're bringing in people too fast. We can't house them. We're out of hotel rooms. We put people up in hotel rooms for months because we didn't have homes to put them in. But, hey, we had to get them here by the artificial deadline. We had to get them here as fast as possible. And then we got them here faster than we could house them. That meant that we couldn't give them the job training and language training that we promised them. And so people went months without job and language training. They only get to be government-assisted refugees for 12 months. And after that, they're on their own. So they missed out on months of training that we promised them. As the Canadian people, when we said, hey, please come to Canada, we'll give you all of this. And then we couldn't deliver because we were rushing it so fast. Well, now this is from... The Toronto Red Star. This is not me. This is the Red Star. Syrian newcomer families struggle amid delays in benefits. And they tell the story of Bedritten El Mohammed. 36-year-old man came to Canada with his wife and five kids. They're age 13, 11, 9, 7, and 5. When he finally gets out of the Plaza Hotel in Toronto, which is not a fancy hotel, by the way, when he finally gets out of it, he signs on a lease for a, an apartment were, that cost $1,700 a month for a three-bedroom apartment. Probably a good deal in Toronto. He was only getting a refugee allowance of $1,600 a month, but there was also a one-lump-sum uh, one, one, uh, payment of $5,000, and he was told, don't worry, you're about to get $2,000 a month in benefits for your kids. The child benefit's coming. You're going to get two grand a month. So he's like, okay, this will cover rent. And probably whatever else they can work, that'll cover food and everything else. They'll be fine. But it turns out that they are delaying the child benefits for all these Syrian families. This guy's been out on his own since March, and he hasn't gotten the child benefits checks yet, despite applying for them. He says to the star, we are very grateful to Canada and its people. We feel peace and safe here. But we struggle just to make sure we have food to feed our children. Now, before you turn around and start saying these are people that are ungrateful, this is a guy who was promised something, who was promised a lot of something by the people that brought him here. Unlike private sponsored refugees, where the community comes together and supports them, this is supposed to be the government. And the government has rejected private help for these refugees in the past. 
But in this case, the government is the one failing them. And these are the people that want to bring in 25,000 more? They couldn't organize a two-car funeral procession. Is this really the way to go? I'll give you the link in a little bit to that immigration questionnaire that I told you about with Richard Curlin, but stick around because coming up next, you're not going to believe this subject. A university out west decided they wanted to help out refugee kids, give them a truly Canadian experience with a summer camp. Except guess what? They're taking the Canadian out of it and keeping the Sharia. That's next. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. On the news with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. What could be more Canadian than summer camps? It's something that most of us at some point in our lives get to do. Now, if you don't come from a wealthy family, maybe you go the way I did. I went to cadet camp. You get paid to go to cadet camp, by the way. I laughed at all my classmates whose parents would pay tons of money for them to go to uh, summer camps. I got paid to go do all the things they did and better, like shoot guns, when I went away to cadet camp. But as we brought in 25,000 Syrian refugees, there's been attempts to try and say, hey, Let's help assimilate them into Canadian culture. And as I said, what could be more Canadian than summer camp? But do we have summer camp according to Canadian rules and Canadian values? Or do we have them according to Syrian values? Well, at the University of Regina, they're doing the latter instead of the former. Sarah Mills is a reporter with News Talk 980 CJME in Regina, and she joins me on the line now because she broke this story uh, earlier today. Uh, Sarah, thanks for the time tonight. Um, Have I summarized it fairly accurately? Uh, Yeah, I think so. It was kind of a shock to some of our listeners who had signed their kids up this summer because they received no notification whatsoever that this was going to be happening. And they're just picking up their kids. You know, you're driving home. And so how was it today? And And one of our listeners, her eight-year-old son, been going to this particular camp for a couple of years, and he said, well, I must have done something wrong because we were separated today. Okay, so this is not just a camp for the Syrian kids. No, this is a camp for, um, and just as you described, a typical uh, camp. It's got sports, it's got art, including swimming, and they're doing all sorts of things together, and it's been running for a few years. Now, the social work faculty has created some Saturday programming solely for the Syrian refugee families and their kids. But what the federal government did was approach the U of R and say, we know that you run day camps and week-long camps for kids during the summer in the community. Will you extend and try and add some spaces for some of the new Canadians? And the U of R turned around and said, well, of course, no problem. And it, you know, as is fair, Brian, I should say that it was pointed out 
there's reasons for separation both on age or ability. You're not going to have a five-year-old playing a particular game with a 12-year-old. It's just yeah, not well, going to be fair. But I, on the- I, Absolutely. But our camps, we've got the uh, University of Ottawa and the Carleton University here in town, and they run similar camps, but it's already divvied up by ages and in sometimes ability levels. You know, in a basketball camp, are you a novice or are you experienced? Yeah. And well, I'm guessing and- the U of R is similar in that way. Well, and certainly when it came to the swimming, it had nothing to do with age or ability for modesty, for religious reasons. They decided without any request from any Syrian family to separate them. Now, uh, people might be able to tell by your accent, Sarah, that you are an immigrant to this country. Uh, would, I am. But cultures are very similar. Uh, you're from England. Would 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 you have expected people when you came to Canada to say, well, let's change everything and do it like Sarah's used to. Let's have tea instead of coffee. No, I I mean, there's lots of, I have to believe, you move to Saskatchewan, you have to bleed green and white. You have to call it soccer and not football. You have to add an A to a couple of sentences here and then. (laughs) You you do, you do have to take steps. And this listener was, when this parent was describing to us how, her, her eight-year-old son was crying because he's going to gymnastic classes with boys and girls. He's doing um, co-ed school. I mean, there's no school in Saskatchewan that is separated in any way. So he's living a culture of boys and girls are together. And he was made to feel that in, in some way he had done something wrong, that he wasn't allowed to do swim lessons. And it's really not swim lessons. It's fun. There's swim, yeah. you know, there's... There's slides, there's all sorts of inflatables that they're having fun with, and the parents were certainly irked that they didn't get any kind of notification whatsoever. And she said, maybe I maybe I'd have changed my mind this time, because she said that's how, not an introduction to Canadian society. Well, it's kind of like saying, don't worry, we'll do things your way, instead of you learning how we do things. My parents came to this country in the 60s, and you know what, there's a reason that I play hockey. I'm not sure I would have if my parents were born here, but my dad was adamant that we learn about hockey and things like that because it, it helps you understand Canadian culture. Well, and Brian, I think there's some examples, in Regina at least, where there's kind of been the, the, the balance struck. There was a group of Muslim women who approached one of the YMCAs in town and said, you know, we, we really want to do some swimming we won't be able to, what can you do? Well, the Y turned around and said, look, we we have paying customers. We're not going to reduce the public hours to the swimming pool and our facilities for our paying customers. But, hey, let's try and strike a balance for you and we'll say, see if we have a staff member, a female staff member, who maybe is willing to stay an extra hour and we'll keep the pool open. One would argue perhaps there's more of a meeting in the middle at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, the U of R argued and said, look, we are a diverse, inclusive structure of learning, a free-thinking institution, and and we think there would be some kids who wouldn't otherwise participate, and that's unfortunate, and we feel this is a way of balancing understanding and inclusion. So you, you spoke to the uh, the dean, Harold Reimer, and he said, no problem. Yeah, he said this. Well, I mean, I my question to him was, is are you not fostering the very racism and intolerance that that you believe exists through your good intentions? Because now you've had an eight year old boy go home and wonder what he did wrong. 
Um, and and what will it what will happen when all of these girls who have been separated during the summer now go to a co-ed school? What steps will take? Are you not simply fostering through what you think are your good intentions the intolerance you're trying to eradicate? When it's not really, it's kind of striking the iron while it's hot when it's not even turned on. Well, yeah, I I shouldn't be surprised. I don't know that much about the U of R. Other than a few years ago, they were the school that, using public funds, installed the foot baths for Muslim students in the public washrooms using public money, which I doubt would happen for other religious and ethnic minorities. Well, so, we had a we had a fantastic um, uh, text uh, into on social media on one of the, the this story when we posted it, and and the person said, "So hang on a second, I'm completely confused because I thought we were meant to be having transgender bathrooms for." Um, everyone to use with no boy or girl signs on, but on the other side, we're completely separating. So what are we? I'm not sure that we really know. Sarah, thanks for the time. Anytime, thanks. All right, Sarah Mills, a reporter with CJME Radio in Regina, where uh, she broke a story earlier today, University of Regina, at their summer camps, separating out boys and girls. If your kids are in summer camps, at Carleton, U of O, anywhere in town, and you hear about something like this, drop me a line. I want to hear about it. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. And in case you're thinking this wouldn't happen here, at public pools in Ottawa, we already have this. There are girls-only swims in the public swim times where the curtains are drawn, the men's change rooms are locked so that men can't get near the pool area, male lifeguards are taken off and the blinds dropped. It is complete Sharia swim. That happens in public pools. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Are you looking for a job? You need something to do in your spare time? You need something that pays pretty well, maybe comes with some perks. I mean, not quite talking about a house on the public dime, but, you know, maybe a car and driver, a nice staff, some assistance. Maybe you should think running about the running for the leadership of the New Democratic Party of Canada because it is a job that is wide open. Until Tom Care Bear Mulcair vacates the spot. He's already announced he'll step down when they find a replacement. But as far as I know, they have not announced the timeline for the leadership vote. And so far, nobody wants it. We'll get into details, uh, the latest details about the uh, Conservative Party of Canada leadership race in a minute. But so far, Nathan Cullen, who was considered a front runner, has said, no, not going to do it. Peter Julian, Nikki Ashton, they might. They're musing about it, but they won't commit one way or another. There was, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know the email address, beyondthenews at cfra.com. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there was one candidate. Her name was Cherry DeNovo. Cherry DeNovo was a, or is still, a crazy member of the crazy NDP caucus at Queen's Park. 
And why do I say she's crazy? Well, beyond all the private members bill she comes up with, she actually announced that she was seeking the leadership of the New Democratic Party of Canada, but would not allow herself to follow the rules because she thought that the the fee to enter was too high and she wouldn't follow the spending caps. And all of the, she just, she wanted to run, but rules, schmools. That's for little people, not socialists. Well, today... She announced a story I read in the Toronto Red Star. She announced that she's backing out, says there's health reasons. And on this, I hope she gets well. I hope she gets treatment. Two small strokes recently, so she is backing out. That means there's no one running for the leadership of the NDP. Maybe my next guest is going to reconsider his job future. His career path. Stephen Taylor is a longtime political pundit. He's editor over at NewsHubNation.com. Make it one of your daily stops when you're looking for news headlines. NewsHubNation.com. Stephen, have you thought about you're new to the media world with this news aggregation site you've got going, but maybe have you considered changing course and going for leadership of the NDP? It's it's wide open for you, my friend. Well, you know, I'll have to grow back my... Uh my beard and i think i'll have to uh you know get my uh, sandals uh, out of the closet here and uh hey look uh, they don't all wear tweed jackets with patches on the elbows anymore that's right well uh for for a party that was so eager to uh get rid of thomas mulcair there's not a lot of eagerness for replacing him um so and we saw some fundraising numbers today which we'll get to later that just shows that even Canadians aren't very enthusiastic about the NDP. So I think the NDP is, I think, officially adrift. Uh, well, let, no, leaders, no leadership. They just know they don't want Thomas Mulcair. And nobody's giving them any money because nobody thinks they have a shot. They, you know, Canada's got Justin Trudeau. So I think the NDP uh, supporters are, are actually quite happy with that. Well, it, you know, if you can't have a socialist, have a socialist light. Let's right. talk about the party fundraising numbers. We'll get to the lead party leadership, the Conservative Party leadership numbers in a minute, which if you're trying to find them on the Elections Canada website under regular filings for leadership contestants, don't bother. Elections Canada, despite bumping up their huge already budget by tens of millions of dollars, despite uh, Mark Mehran growing an empire... They still have a useless website for an organization run by a man that shouldn't be in the job. There's my editorial comment there. But let's talk about the party fundraising numbers. The conservatives are still out ahead, followed by the liberals. And as you said, the NDP, the bottom's fallen out. That's right. So how how bad is it? Uh, For the NDP, well, they are raising, it seems, $1 for every $5 that the liberals or the Conservatives are raising for their own respective parties. I mean, they're starting to get into the Green Party territory. Uh, it's not as bad as the Bloc Québécois, but, I mean, when you're on the same level of fundraising as Elizabeth May, you got to kind of start to worry about things. Because, you know, Elizabeth May, it's just sort of this, this passion project for her, is to, you know, be this perennial uh, leader of a party which has, you know, not even a handful of seats in the House of Commons. Uh, but the NDP is supposed to be a viable party for power in this country. I mean, we saw, you know, some significant uh, attempts uh, with Jack Layton. And even early days, Thomas Mulcair was leading in the polls in the last election. And now they're they're a shadow of them, their former self. 
As far as the conservative party, though, it's not like people are exactly busting down the doors. There's still only three official candidates. Despite Tony Clement and Deepak Obrai both saying that they are running, they haven't filed the paperwork or plopped down the cash and done all the official things they need to do with Elections Canada. Uh, so really, it's only Kelly Leach, Michael Chon, and Maxine Bernier that are still official candidates. Uh, there's still others in the in the woodwork might come out yet. But what does that say about this party? Well, there's there's something else to consider too, and that is that um, when before you run uh, or say you are officially running for leadership, I think Elections Canada defines it as if you write, raise money for that purpose or spend money on that purpose, you're in. You're officially in. Now, of course, you, I think you can build up your own profile uh, through uh, money, say if you're, you're an MP and you want to reach out to more constituents, or if you're a private citizen and you want to build your profile in some other way, which could have another purpose. You could do that, like build up your Facebook likes or whatever. Um, and, until you actually declare and you're finally in, then you're suddenly restricted within the process. So I think some people might be keeping their powder dry, um, and indeed, that might be also the case with the NDP. But I think for the Conservatives, um, there's a bit of wait and see that's going on. And I think that we haven't seen uh, some of the big names uh, jump in yet. And uh, we have yet to see that. Speaking with longtime political pundit, currently editor of NewsHubNation.com, Stephen Taylor, about uh, leadership politics in Canada. And just for everyone that's keeping track, Kaiser Khan alert on the Clinton News Network. That's right. They're giving even more time. They gave three minutes to the Patricia Smith this weekend. Kaiser Khan, though, back on CNN. It'll be a 10-minute interview with Anderson Cooper. Let's go back to Canadian politics. Uh, so the fundraising numbers for the leadership contenders are out. And Kelly Leach is blowing everyone else away. Uh, let me give you a, a few numbers. I know you've got them on hand, but I'll read them off. I'll get you to react. Kelly Leach has raised so far... $234,785.59. She's got $334 or 334 donors. Average donation, $702. From $234, you got to drop all the way down to $84,000 for Michael Chon in second place. $84,689 from 141 contributors. Average donation, $600. And then Bernier, who... In some ways, in the public eye, media, policy announcements, and all of that has been the most active. He's only raised $56,902.83 from 218 contributors. Average donation, $261. What do you make of Kelly Leach just blowing the other two out of the water completely? Well, I think uh, she she had a head start. She was the first to declare. and um, from some by, accounts, by a day or two. Well, yeah, but by some accounts, she's also been... Uh, laying the groundwork uh, since, I think, during the last election. Um, also, she's got quite a capable um, call center and uh, team in place uh, with uh, Richard Chiano and Campaign Research. They're doing uh, great work for her. But let's also put it in perspective. The cap uh, for the race is, is $5 million. So it seems that Kelly Leach has raised about 5% of that cap so far. So it looks like there's a lot more room uh, for people once uh, we get out of these sort of, uh, you know, dog days of summer uh, to get that machine going. I think a lot of donors also are playing wait and see. It's not as if 
you know, Kelly Leach declares and everyone says, well, it's over. You know, all my money's going to Kelly and uh, that's it. Uh, and every every donor in the country uh, feels the same way. No, I think I think there's uh, some wait and see, especially since, I mean, we look at Justin Trudeau, what he raised uh, for his leadership race at the Liberal Party. He raised $2 million. Uh, and, you know, Kelly Leach has raised about 10% of that. So I think that there's still a lot of uh, runway left uh, for this type of leadership race, which is, of course, the big two. Uh, and as, of course, we said the NDP is is nowhere to be found in those numbers, even if you look at what the parties have been raising through the first and second quarters of this year. Now, while I'll admit that Kelly Leach's total in comparison to her two competitors, Michael Chong and Maxime Bernier, that it's impressive. I'm, yeah. n- I'm not impressed with the number of donors for any of them. No. You know, she's got $702 is her average donation. Bernie Sanders took on Hillary Clinton with an average donation. Of, was it 27 or $29? I can't remember. 27, $27, yeah. So and, less and, than 30 bucks, but he just was able to tap into uh, a, an area of support of people giving small amounts. And even in this type of leadership campaign, I mean, it, it's closed compared to an open system. You've got to be donating to the party. You, normally, it's just members of the party. But still, you don't need to be having people give you $702 if you can find enough of them. And I, you know, with only 334 donors and she's well above the other two, I think there's room for all of them to grow, but also somebody from the outside to grow. Now, okay, to be fair, uh, in Canadian politics and even in American politics, the, the phenomenon of the smaller donor, uh, smaller money donor, really kind of started with um, Barack Obama. And Canada always sort of follows the trend. Uh, I think the average donation to the Liberal Party and to the Conservative Party ranges in the sort of $80, $90 range. So we have quite a while uh, ways to go into sort of making um, our respective parties, Conservative and Liberal, um, into these sort of more uh, small donations. And, and quite frankly, um, that's the direction which uh, these parties should be going because the more donors you have and sort of the more frequent uh, donations you get, sort of the more, uh, the less you depend on, on these big um, donors. And, well, you and know- let, 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 let me just say something about the big, the big numbers at the outset of this race. There is a lot of, you know, you go you make those calls early uh, to uh, get those big donations from the people who you know who can give them so you can build the infrastructure for the type of you know, people-powered campaign uh, that will uh, follow. I know the Liberals, um, they will ask you for as little as $3. Just quickly, Stephen, I've got to ask you about uh, the others that might jump in. Peter McKay, I still don't think, has decided. You've got Brad Trost saying he'll announce in September. Andrew Shears and maybe, and I think Kevin O'Leary's out. 30 seconds to you on those. Yeah, well, actually, I've been hearing a lot about uh, Shear. I, I actually um, am pretty sure that he's going to be jumping in. Uh, Brad Trost, um, I think uh, he's likely um, just because there's, uh, you know, for socially for social conservative, for the, the, the types of issues that uh, – large number of Canadians, um, or at least a, a portion of, of Canadians uh, that support the Conservative Party feel like they don't get a lot of attention to. I think Brad Trost uh, certainly uh, brings those up. And uh, which was the other name you said? Uh, Peter McKay and um, and Kevin O'Leary. 
I think McKay oh, has Kevin decided. O'Leary, yeah, that, Kevin O'Leary's already indicated that he's supportive of Tony Clement. It seems like if there's going to be a candidate Kevin O'Leary's behind, it's going to be Tony Clement. So they might work something out there. Um, but I don't, I don't see Kevin O'Leary jumping in the race because the only way he jumps in the race is if he knows he can win because his brand isn't the type where he loses sometimes and wins sometimes. All right, speaking with Stephen Taylor, editor of News Hub Nation, he's going to stick with us because he also follows social media closely. He's taught me a lot about social media, and there's a big development. There's a bit of a war going on in the social media sphere. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. If you see somebody walking down the street staring at their smartphone, they might be playing Pokemon Go, but there's just as good, if not better, chance that they're checking out Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or Snapchat on Instagram now. <gasps> Have you heard? You can now do stories on Instagram with video, and basically they've ripped off Snapchat. It is part of an ongoing war in social media. They're all trying to one-up each other. I'm not sure how any of them make money, but... In addition to being a political pundit, as I said, Stephen Taylor, editor over at NewsHubNation.com, has been someone that has uh, helped me figure out some of social media as it has progressed beyond just posting a status update. Stephen, what do you make of this now? Snapchat started out as something where 12-year-olds traded pictures that disappeared as soon as your friend saw them into something now where the Daily Mail, the most read newspaper in the english language is animating its stories on there and instagram said hold on we can't lose market share to them yeah okay so i think there are a few big things here uh facebook uh google uh and uh amazon and apple are the big companies in silicon valley that actually make money hand over fist uh snapchat uh, is based on a lot of venture capital right now. They're only starting to get into advertising to start to recoup that investment. Uh, and Twitter uh, is another company that, well, their share price has tanked over the past year and a half. Uh, we don't know uh, sort of the longevity of that company. But of the four companies I said, those are the companies that are making money. Facebook, and and, and let, let's just say something that Facebook owns Instagram. Yes, that's right. And Facebook being the I don't. I should check their market cap, but it is uh, in the ten. Well, it might be a hundred billion dollars right now. Last time I checked, they're bigger than CBS. Uh, Facebook itself, uh, when they show up with a product, uh, they basically steamroll their competition. So Snapchat, while it's trying to find its feet, I think a lot. I think uh, the, the folks at Facebook and the folks at Instagram were looking at Snapchat and saying, you know what? People are posting photos on Instagram, but it's sort of more this curation of nice photos. Maybe like I was on vacation and there's this really great snap and I want to show people a very kind of select curation of my life. But then they saw that Snapchat came along and people were posting like, I don't know, three, four, ten videos a day and photos about just their daily goings on. And and one of the big metrics in Silicon Valley is daily active users. and I think uh, Instagram, you know, people were maybe updating uh, a few times a day, but most people were updating at most once a day and maybe like once a week. But 
on Snapchat, people are updating that thing like multiple times a day. They are getting high engagement. So I think as a, as a big company, Facebook and, and, and Instagram, all they had to do was just show up with the product, integrate it with a current product, and then all of a sudden they've steamrolled their competition. And they admit that they took it from them. Now, in fairness to Snapchat, it's not just 12-year-olds anymore. There are brands, there are politicians, there are major media outlets. Uh, Ron Ambrose is on Snapchat. In fact, when I did my interview where I drank that green goblet of goo that she <laughs> makes uh, in her juicer, she posted a little video of it to, to Snapchat. That's so, right. Yeah, you know, Tony Clement is out there right now trying to to use all of these different mediums as part of his leadership campaign. So there's brands, there's media outlets, there's politicians. It's gone well beyond twelve year olds, but this might just steamroll it. That's right. And um, the added advantage of Instagram for brands and for uh, politicians is they can also show the depth of their influence. Uh, I guess it's been an advantage of, in a way, on the on the inverse on Snapchat is, you know, if you're, you know, if you've got two followers on Snapchat, you appear in sort of the same way that you do if you have a million followers because you can't actually see how many followers you have on Snapchat. It, like for other people, you can't go in and see, like I can't go into your account and see, oh, Brian is being followed by a million people. I can't see that. But on, on Instagram, it shows that sort of social proof that, you know, I might have 10,000 followers on, on Instagram. And therefore, you know, someone new that's checking on my account says, oh, they must post really good content. That might, might be interesting. So it's got this sort of positive reinforcement mechanism that Snapchat uh, doesn't have. Let me ask you about Twitter. Uh, they were desperate to get attention during the Republican National Convention, the Democratic National Convention, saying, hey, look, you can watch the whole thing. We're uh, live streaming it. Is Twitter going to wane in influence as these other uh, companies take away uh, part of the social media currency? Yeah, so the problem with Twitter is, you know, you and I love Twitter. Uh, uh, no, I don't. Well, hold on, hold on. We love the functionality of Twitter because it provides – we're kind of these odd animals uh, who, you know, get our news almost every second. We want to know sort of what the latest development is, and politicians love it for the same reason because it's sort of this – this constant churn of uh, what's going on, whereas the rest of the world, you know, your mother and your brother are, you know, how do I get my kids photos on Twitter? Well, I don't want to get my kids photos on Twitter. I want to get them on, on Facebook. You know, how do I get my friends photos? I'm going to get that on Snapchat. I'm going to get that on Instagram. So for, you know, everyone else who is normal in the world, they, they consume social media in very much a very normal way. And that isn't how Twitter is, and that's not how Twitter behaves. The biggest criticism of Twitter is they haven't been able to figure out how to bridge the gap between sort of the, that power user who is on their phone all the time checking, you know, the latest, you know, minutia of whatever event and sort of normal everyday experience for everyone else. All right. Stephen Taylor, editor of NewsHubNation.com. Check it out. Make it part of your daily experience. NewsHubNation.com. Thanks for the help and uh, time, my friend. Hey, thank you. All right. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, we'll open up the phone lines. 521-TALK, 521-8255. By the way, I was wrong. Anderson Cooper didn't give Curious Khan 10 minutes. He gave him 20. The media bias continues. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News.
News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Without counting CNN, the Clinton News Network, without counting Fox, without counting MSLSD, the main three American networks in the four days after their respective speeches gave 70 seconds, 70 seconds to Patricia Smith, the mother of Sean Smith, who was killed in the terrorist attack at Benghazi, September 11th, 2012, middle of the last U.S. presidential election campaign. The one where, uh, oh, what's her name? Candy. Candy on CNN was moderating the debate between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama and stepped in and told Romney he was wrong and that Obama was right when, in fact, they later had to say, when no one was watching, that she was wrong, that Romney was right. That it was a terrorist attack, that it had been blamed on a video and all that other stuff. They gave Patricia Smith 70 seconds of airtime in the four days after she spoke at the Republican convention. They gave Kiriz Khan and his wife, who doesn't really say anything, 55 minutes of coverage. And right now, Kiriz Khan is on the Clinton News Network for almost half an hour. Yet when they had Patricia Smith on the other day on CNN, it was not even three minutes. And half of that, half of that was the anchor talking and interrupting. So while Donald Trump absolutely messes up and makes mistakes, the media doesn't jump on the mistakes of Hillary Clinton. The media doesn't jump on the mistakes of Barack Obama. The media doesn't jump on the mistakes of the Democrats quite like they do the Republicans. Hey, remember, maybe you heard in the newscast, several executives left their jobs today. No, they were fired because they were incompetent boobs that were interfering in the nomination process in favor of Hillary Clinton and against Bernie Sanders. But you know, they, they left their jobs. No, they were fired because the leaked email showed that the system was rigged. But on the day after that came out, what were the networks talking about? Did the Russians leak these emails to help Donald Trump? They weren't talking about the content of the emails. Regular Democrats on the floor of the convention were talking about the emails, and even Clinton supporters were PO'd. But the networks, speaking to millions of people, wanted to turn around and make this about Trump in a negative way. Just like today, they're going after Trump for saying that the election is rigged, that the system's rigged. You know who said that for months? Bernie Sanders. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that Barack Obama says that Trump isn't fit to be president, is that he's claiming the system's rigged. I've heard reporter after reporter talk about that today as well. Well, I mean, he's not even showing confidence in the electoral system. Bernie Sanders said this for months. I didn't see you coming out and saying he was unfit to be president or unfit to be a candidate. 
Donald Trump says the same thing, and oh, my Lord, oh, oh, we can't have that. Biased hacks. That's all I can say. Biased hacks. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or 1-800-580-CFRA. We didn't do a segment on U.S. politics today, but as you can tell, I'm a little worked up as I keep looking over and seeing the Clinton News Network do the bidding. I mean, essentially repeat the talking points of Hillary Clinton. So if you want to comment on U.S. politics, happy to take your call. 521-TALK, 521-8255. You want to email me, beyondthenews at CFRA.com. But let's also remember the Canadian issues that I've raised tonight. Issues of immigration, integration. We've got a consultation going on online right now by the federal government. Are you going to take part? Are you going to let the Canadian government know your stand on immigration? Good, bad, or indifferent. What are you going to tell them? I keep pointing out that on the left, they're always, always ready and willing to stack the deck, to stack the meetings. We talked about this with the climate change meetings recently that have been held across the country. Ecology Ottawa here locally just stacks the deck on them. Well, are you going to take part in the immigration questionnaire? If you go find my latest story at therebel.media, you'll find the link to it, and you can have your say, good, bad, or indifferent. My main questions around immigration would be about integration. Which brings me to the story out of Regina. University of Regina taking their summer camps, camps that they've run for years now, just like we have at Carleton and U of O locally. Boys and girls playing together. Sports, arts. And then they have some time in the pool, except now... Because these camps were opened up to the children of Syrian refugees, boys and girls can't swim together anymore. At eight. Why? Religious accommodation. Would they have done that if evangelical Christians had said that? If Catholics had said that? If Jews had said that? If Hindus had said that? If Sikhs had said that? No. And apparently, the university wasn't even asked. So instead of using this as a chance to talk about Canadian values and how we do things, the university decided to proactively show how diverse they are by being, I don't know, retrograde? What would you call it? We're going back to the early 1900s. Boys and girls can't swim together. Is that what we're doing here? And don't be too smug, Ottawa. As I said, in our own swimming pools, our own public pools, our own paid-for city pools, we have Sharia Swim. Sharia Swim. There's no other way to describe it. When male lifeguards are not allowed to be on duty, when the blinds are drawn, when the men's change rooms are locked so that you can't go in and tell your daughter, hey, it's time to come out. This happened to me. My daughter was asked to go swimming. Her and some friends. They were asked to go swimming on I don't know, it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, something to that effect. It was a weeknight. Dropped them off at 7 or so. I went to go pick them up. Wanted to go in and tell my daughter, hey, I'm here, let's go. Change room's locked. What? Yeah, there's no men allowed in there. 
Why? Well, it's a, it's a female-only swim. Men aren't allowed to go swimming. Men aren't allowed to be on staff. Men aren't allowed to look through the window because they close the blinds. Why? For the Muslim population. Is that integration or is that going backwards? That does not help them learn and understand Canadian values. And if we're so open-minded and so pluralistic that we accept anything, then we stand for nothing. I would love to hear your thoughts on that, on the camp and what we do here locally. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Maybe you've got kids in one of these camps at Carleton, U of O, maybe some of the school boards. I know they have swimming as part of their day. Have they gone this route as well? Because until this year, University of Regina had co-ed swimming. They might have been divided by what camp they were in or age. But boys and girls swam together, and now they don't. Out of cultural accommodation, is that really where we want to go? And is it happening here at the camps? Because it is at the public pools. 521-TALK, 521-8255-STAR-580 on Bell Mobility. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Give it to me, I'm worth it. Five two one talk, five two one eight two five five, star five eighty on Bell Mobility. Any parents out there with their kids in summer camps? Are they doing the Sharia swim at the the summer camp your kids go to? I mean, maybe the camp your kids go to, they've always separated boys and girls. My girls have gone to a girls-only camp, and that's one thing. But if you've had a camp where, you know, it's a city camp or a school camp, and, and they've always had boys and girls together, and then they're splitting them, I'd love to hear about it because that's what's happening at U of R. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a little concerning. And I have no problem with boys and girls having their own camps, their own clubs. Still annoyed that scouts and cubs, you cannot have boys-only Boy Scouts anymore. You can have girls-only Girl Guides, but not boys-only Boy Scouts. I'm annoyed at that, and so I get that. But if there's always been integration and then you start segregating when no one asked so that we can show that we're open and diverse, that's wrong. Peter, in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, good evening, Brian. I was going to make a comment about the uh, media circus down in the States, but I think you're at the other topic about uh, dividing up the kids, uh, boys and girls. I mean, this is a good opportunity because this is precisely, I think, uh, this kind of thinking where, you know, they think that their kids have got to be separate uh, from boys and girls. I mean, isn't that precisely the kind of thinking that has led uh, to so much misunderstanding and lack of mutual understanding and that's a reason why there's so much conflict and fighting over there i mean well, wouldn't, in other words if people were actually allowed to you know to uh, exist uh coeducationally normally i think it would be healthier for for their for their mindset and they wouldn't be transporting sort of a, an ancient way of thinking around the world 
whichever country they go to. I mean, it, to, to me, it's a very good uh, it's a very good example of you know um, their practices which cause their own problems. And I think it's horrifying that they're actually trying to import that here. I think that they have to be living in a in a in a Western country to, for a certain period of time before they can actually see the error of their ways. I mean. I, I, I think that if I remember rightly from the story, and I'm just skimming over it now, uh, I don't believe anybody asked the university to do this. They did it. Yeah. They, they said, we're going to show how open we are. Right, right. And, that, and that's, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, your, your hyperactive um, uh, university president trying to trying to ward off any possible uh, controversy down the road, you know, and trying to be, you know, over... Well, except he's, he is bringing controversy, and I think rightly so, because it's a controversy about being so open, being so open-minded that he can't even stand for Canadian values. And Cana- yeah. If, yeah. We, if we started doing this at a Catholic school, Catholic schools are publicly funded, if they started doing this, and, and I know that at a certain age level, yeah. Both public and Catholic schools, they start yeah. dividing the kids up for gym class. Yeah. And I get that. You don't want boys tackling girls while the boys are playing football. Right. That's not nice. But right. we're talking about eight-year-olds having yeah. a fun swim time. Yeah. And we're being told that this is happening due to modesty and religious accommodation. Uh, that, that, that doesn't sit well with me. No, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, if you look at the, the Middle Eastern societies, I mean, they've been roiling in, in, in controversy and ethnic hatreds and, and conflict for, uh, for centuries. And um, they still are not able to get it under control by themselves. And that would reflect more to their systems of government, which are basically religion-based and tribal-based. And they, they, have, they, had ne- they have yet to fully embrace reason and fully embrace rational thinking, in my opinion. And they have yet to... Um, you know, construct institutions in the Middle East which will allow for calm, rational uh, debate over issues instead of taking a knife. I mean, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of these countries over there, I mean, the, they, they grab, uh, you know, they, 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 they got 80-year-old men who want to marry uh, 8-year-old girls. That, 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 to that do I, I don't know about. I know it happens from time to time, but I couldn't comment. But as far as reason goes, you know, fide e ratio. That's the term. It means faith and reason, and they go together. They have for centuries. A quick comment on the um, the Clinton News Network and all the other media circus well, down I, there, Peter. I, I think that uh, that Donald Trump. Let's not forget that Donald Trump was able to beat sixteen other very seasoned uh, political executives uh, to to win the to win the contest. And I think that the uh, the media now is. You know, I, I think they've passed the point of embarrassing themselves, and I think the DNC certainly did that. I mean, they, uh, you know, the, the curtain was pulled back, and uh, you know, Bernie Sanders was completely right. It's like this was, this whole thing has been rigged, and I think if Trump, you know, if if he doesn't let these uh, these biased media attacks get under his skin, then I think that uh, he's going to do very well because you know he. He broke through. He he won the contest over uh, over sixteen other governors, I'll, and uh, there's a reason he won that. You know? Absolutely, I'll tell you one reason why he might uh, win when others couldn't against similar biased media. He fights back, and conservatives in this country don't fight back, and quite often in the states they don't fight back. Whatever else I might think of him, he fights back. Let's go to Guy. Guy, the Capital Voice. You're on Beyond the News. 
Oh boy, did you say that right? Conservatives don't fight back in Canada. Can I ditto that one? Absolutely. Oh, Brian. So I wanted to I wanted to prove something that Keith Leslie said to Rob Snow on Friday. And he is a very seasoned journalist, and he is absolutely 100% correct. Because I verified all through the weekend and through today, nary a mention of the ORPP wind down and Mr. Raffi. And I'm going to call Keith Leslie and ask him about a statement that he made on Friday uh, with Rob Snow that his job at the Ministry of Health is actually on hold for him as a deputy minister once he finishes winding down the ORPP. Oh, but, man. Yeah, but Brian, just to confirm exactly the game the Liberals played, they gave us the distraction bobble on the shakedown with Sousa on Tuesday with the $15 million website promised to deliver in four to ten days where the whole media uh, gaggle laughed at them. And sure enough, what was the distraction bobble on the Thursday just before um, uh, Fursillo gets charged and the long weekend hits? Yes, the ORPP. And sure well, enough, I mean, they really, nothing, they nothing re- in the Red Star, nothing in the Globe and Mail. One press release, it runs on Friday. Keith Leslie comes out from the Canadian press. God bless him. I, I heard that it. interview, and he said quite clearly that this was, and we've all dealt with this. As Keith Leslie said to Rob Snow, you normally expect this at 4 o'clock or yep. 4.59 on a Friday. Yeah. And they will release things like this as everyone's heading home for the weekend. I mean, yep, look, exactly. journalists have lives too. Yep, New, exactly. Newsrooms pare down at night. No, I, and I, and I, they will throw this stuff out there and hope that nobody notices. But they they heard the Forcillo sentencing was happening. They released it in the middle of that because that was the big news. Well, I'd like to find out from Mr. Leslie if, in fact, as I say, when Rafi, Mr. Sahid Rafi, um, winds down the ORPP, his, his job is actually waiting for him as a deputy minister of health. That is incredible. All right, got to ask you quickly, uh, you say Bob Shirelli was booed at the Red Blacks? Oh, my God, did you hear? You weren't there on, on Sunday, were you? No. Oh, my God. I, you know what? Yasser got a few hundred boos, but when he introduced Bob Shirelli, I don't know if you've got the clip or if Steve can dig it up, but, um, you know, I'll tell you, you know, Bob Shirelli makes Alphonse Gagliano blush, you know, and now that he's Minister of Infrastructure, Brian, and I'll tell you, he sure got what he deserved on Sunday. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, it just you know, it's unbelievable that the Shirelli name can still garner the number of votes that it does in this city to take Ottawa West Nepean. He has his constituency very well defined, but if you look at the working man and the people who go to the football game and the people who pay the hydro bills in this city, Bob sure got what he deserved on Sunday night. But uh, I wanted to make one comment, right. if I could, on the Sunday programming with Christy uh, uh, Christy Cameron. And Chris Sims, I got to tell you, the girls at CFRA are doing a great job. The interview today with uh, Ms. Larson, uh, Chris Sims had, and I think that Christy Cameron did a great job on Sunday. And I just want to congratulate the uh, all right the girls. Kudos uh, to Chris and Christy. Yeah, they, they, they you know what? It, it's it's a change. It's light. Chris Sims really knows the issue. She really comes from a conservative background, and uh, I love her. And I hope that uh, she gets more airtime at CFRA. She greatly deserves it, in my view. Thanks for the call, Guy. Thank you for hearing me up, Brian. Have a great Well, sorry. Music started. We went. 521-TALK, 521-8255. You want to join the conversation. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Beyond the News at CFRA.com.
Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580 CFRA. The Clinton News Network continues right now. They're holding a whole panel. Anderson Cooper has been doing two hours on nothing but Trump and how awful he is. And now they're doing a whole panel discussion on how Donald Trump is not backing Paul Ryan and John McCain for reelection when they've come out publicly and said they, they, they don't back him. So, and by the way, this is not a public statement by Trump. This is based on off-the-record comments and the like. I just... He makes enough mistakes on his own that you don't need to have the entire media establishment against him. Let's go to Mike in Ottawa calling in on Hillary Clinton. Hi, Brian. Hi. Mike, did you know that she went on TV and called Patricia Smith, uh, the mother of uh, Sean Smith that died in Benghazi, a liar yet again this weekend? Did you hear that? Yes. Because, well, you're one of few because the Clinton News Network isn't going to play that up the way they're playing up the cons, are they? And I've been watching it all every day, okay? I've been following it prolifically, uh, whatever that word is. But, um, see, in my opinion, coming from a counseling perspective, okay, what Hillary Clinton does is she uses all the um, um, defense mechanisms to attack Donald. So everything that she's guilty of, it's called transference. She transfers that and accuses Donald of that. Everything that Donald comes up, like good policies, you know, on the economy and putting people back to work and raising people out of poverty, she takes on as her own. When all along, we all know she's she's done everything to not raise people out of poverty, stimulate the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And this is what the left wing are professionals at, okay? They're professionals at, at using these character, character um, well, defense mechanisms, Okay, I call them like they're they're part of their character defect. Yeah. Okay, and they use it against everybody, and it's gotten so bad now that that any opposition to the left wing ideology and rhetoric, okay, is 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 being shut down, and people are going along with that. I talk to my friends about the election in the states because I think it's a very important election because Donald Trump is right about the threat of ISIS. He's right to stop immigration into the country till they figure out how to vet them. Trudeau doesn't care. Trudeau calls multiculturalism, all the cultures that come from other worlds, other places, that they come to Canada and they live in their own culture, they bring their culture with them, and we have to respect that. That's nonsense. We are losing our country. The United States is losing the United States, and I'm glad Donald Trump is standing up. He's the only one who has the guts to stand up. He's another Kennedy, and we need him in power. And I talk to my friends about the election. You know what? Mm-hmm. They don't even want to hear it. They don't want to know. They don't want to know nothing because everybody is living in fear. They don't want to know. Well, this is why I raised the stories. Thanks for the call, Mike. Thanks. Let's go to Gloria in Ottawa. Gloria, you're on Beyond the News. Hi. Hi, Brian. Well, I'd like to talk about uh, the um, actions of of the immigrants. First of all, right from the beginning, all immigrants uh, should be told 
that they must assimilate into our can, our Canadian well, culture. The, the term I like better, Gloria, is integrate. Because integrate. That, that still allows you to hold on to what makes you you and mm-hmm. your culture, but you become Canadian at the same time. Good word. Good word. Exactly. And, well, they, then, then they, they, they have to and they must integrate into our culture, um, their, our, I forget the culture word, <laughs> an open society. Because if, if they don't, there will always be well, separation of different cultures and there will always be uh, suspicions of each other. And it, it, I think that it's the people in charge. Um, and and uh, this is the cause of, of, of uh, this separa- uh, of separation. You I know, came from a happening. very multicultural neighborhood as a child. I've said this before on the radio. If you uh, were born to Canadian parents in my neighborhood, you were the mm. weird one. <laughs> you were the weird one because we were all kids of immigrants or the kids were immigrants themselves. Guess what? We came together. We had to learn how to work together and mm. and integrate. We became we played hockey against each other. None of us came from cultures that played hockey. We we took on the culture that was around us at the same time. I, I mentioned earlier that I ran into a, a young Palestinian uh, immigrant who said he came to this country and his family was told similar to what mine were told. You can't take welfare. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. And, mm-hmm. you know, please join the, the culture. Exactly. That message does need to get across. I think Jason Kenney did a very good job at, at doing that. Actions yeah. like the university, I don't think, help anybody. Absolutely, absolutely not. Neither and neither. I think that the people in charge, uh, they are told that this separation of boys and girls, especially at that camp uh, for swimming, I, I believe it's myself because it's of religion. And the thing, it's the same way, uh, same thing as wearing a kneecap. They say it's because of religion when it has absolutely not one single thing to do with religion. It's a form of dressing. And it, it's and it's the people in charge of our institutions who are censoring and 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 accommodating and catering to the, especially uh, Middle Eastern immigrants, and, uh, and and then we have also the the pandering, uh, sniffling. I, I, they annoy me so much. Politicians <laughs> yep. cater to them and ho- for, for votes. Well, and I, ra- I, I think that's what's driving it. Yeah, and and rather than saying this is our culture and and we we would uh, we know we like all uh, to integrate uh, with us, still keeping your own b- beliefs. But this is Canada. Why did you come here in the first place? Because that's then- that's why the majority of immigrants come here, Gloria, is to do that. It's these university administrators that make life difficult for everybody, and as you say, divide and lead to suspicion. Eli in Ottawa, you're calling in on immigration. Hello, Hello. Eli? Yes. You're on the air. Yeah, your line dropped for a second. How are you, uh, Brian? I'm well. Yeah, so you can tell from my accent, I'm not a Canadian born. I'm Canadian now. You're from Barhaven. Um, (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) There you go. I was a Barhaven actually when I called in. (laughs) (laughs) I was driving. Okay. So I come from Lebanon, and um, I came to Canada exactly for what Canada is, because there's this freedom of being free and, you know, express what you want, say what you want, and uh, um, respect the law, and people respect you. Um, I ran away from where, in the Middle East, they actually, you know, put pressure on you and everything, and they want this uh, 
uh, I don't know what the English word to use, like they want to close on you. They want you to always do what they think is um, uh, their value. They want control. So, yes. And from my, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who really loves Canada and I want the Canadian values to um, win in the end, if I can use that mm-hmm. word. Um, I was about to open a, uh, to start a uh, Facebook page about this, but then I said, hey, maybe somebody will come after me and, you know, kick my ass, so let me just uh, stay away from this. <laughs> uh, but I think you're doing a great job. Well, you should continue at this, and what you say about this should be, like, nonstop. Thank you, Eli. I, look, I think the majority of immigrants come to Canada like you do. You say, I'm not sure about where I am. But I like what's over there. Let's go there. And, and people come here for what Canada is. And then you've got do-gooders like the dean, Dean Reiner, I think his name was, at uh, at the university, who yeah. um, who turns around. Uh, yeah, Dean Reimer turns around and says, no, we've got to do this. Hey, apparently, he wasn't even asked. Exactly. Well, even if he was asked, why would he? He, he know, should have said no. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Even if he was asked, you know. I can't believe, I mean, Justin Trudeau, the way he's running this uh, whole thing about uh, multiculturalism, is, is, no. it doesn't make sense. I, I, I don't know which, you know, what religious background you were from in Lebanon, but in Lebanon, when you grew up, did boys and girls swim in the same pool together? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I'm Christian, so mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of not the same as uh, for the Muslims. I have nothing against the Muslims, it's just that... What they claim to be part of the religion, it's not. It's only but, but, but my understanding is there's lots of parts of the Muslim world where this would have happened no problem 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. And, and, and that it has been this, this push of, you know, stricter and stricter interpretations. And, you know, I'll bring on Tarek Fatah again soon. And yes. uh, he'll, ex- you know, he can describe what Pakistan was like when he was there as a teenager, long hair and listening to the Beatles. That would not be allowed today. <laughs> and Iran. Iran was, like, way yeah. more open than now with the, uh, you know, I don't know why they're going more stricter and stricter with this, as you the- said. But in Canada to allow this and to almost allow Sharia law and, you know, to allow them to separate, uh, you know, girls and boys when they're eight years old and nine years old and even, you know. Doesn't make 13, sense to me. Doesn't make sense. All right. Thanks for the call, Eli. You just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or email. You got some email love for BLL tonight? Beyond the News at CFRA.com. gone mad there must be resistance you're listening to beyond the news with brian Lilly on news talk 580 cfra anderson cooper 360 you know what the 360 stands for 360 stories about donald trump all the stories he can fit in from hillary clinton's talking points and com shop it's guys like him that make me like donald trump you may have noticed i'm less critical of trump trump doesn't need more critics it's the entire media establishment doesn't need me to jump on board Let's go to Dave in Ottawa. Dave, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, hi, thanks for taking my call again, Brian. No problem. Um, first of all, my impression of Hillary Clinton, she has got to be the most lying, deceitful, 
cheating, stealing, corrupt person in public life since gosh knows who, since Genghis Khan maybe. I'd say more than Nixon. I would. She's she's totally corrupt from Benghazi to Whitewater to stuffing her own uh, finances and everything else. And there's there's nothing good to be said about her. You know, the uh, the thing you can say about Nixon was he didn't use his job to enrich himself. And Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton both have. Exactly. Now, I've heard somebody or I read in the paper, I think, over the past couple of days that maybe the best scenario is at least a one term Trump victory. I mean, if he works out, that's fine. If he deserves a second term, that's great. But if, he, if, it's, if it doesn't work out that well, it's better a one term Trump than a one or two term Clinton. Can, can America afford a third Barack Obama term? Really? That's what it comes down to. Or a fourth. The, 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 the corruption that goes along. I mean, and Trump is cutting his own throat. I mean, the, the Khan thing, he, he could have just left that alone, take the hit and move on. His cost so much more, the backlash has come back over and over and over okay, again. But, and I point this out, Dave, you, you are correct to a degree, but Hillary Clinton was asked on Fox News Sunday by Chris Wallace, probably the most liberal host they have, but a fair journalist, was asked about the whole issue of Patricia Smith saying that she was lied to. And she basically turned around and called the grieving mother of a Benghazi hero a liar. And, mm, you know, there's a few headlines in conservative media, but it's not bombardment after bombardment after bombardment on all the networks and all the news channels. That's exactly what I mean. You know, there's, there's, there's no there's no bottom to her deceit and deviousness and evil, I'll call it. All right. Thanks no, for the, I wanted to oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I also told the screen I want to talk about the uh, Westboro police thing. Go ahead. Well, yeah, we don't know the story. There's so many threads. I mean, was the person arrested by the Gatineau police the same person involved with the police skirmish in Westboro? It looks like they must have made a mistake because they're, they're looking for a new suspect. Yeah. Now, the thing about that is what, what right now is a comedy of errors. And I'll call it that because that's what I believe it is. Well, it, it looks really bad on the Ottawa police. Yeah. Now, the thing is, a gun went off, was fired. That The comedy of errors could easily have been a tragedy of errors. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and last I heard, correct me if I'm wrong, they haven't said how the gun went off. I wouldn't be surprised if it was the suspect they're still looking for that fired the gun. We don't know, and they aren't telling us anything. But of course, they can't. They can't compromise the uh, investigation and who they're looking for. But I was going to bring that to one other thing, if I could. Go quick. And it, it is that if the person they stopped first, let's say, was the innocent one, okay, why are you stopping me? What's the problem? Ask me some questions. We'll get this sorted out. Um, if, it's, if the person they stopped was the, was the culprit they were looking for, then they should have. They should have them. Yeah, well, and unfortunately, they don't. We're, there's, there's we're not so going to know what it is. Know, it's lucky it turned out as it did. Yeah, true words. Somebody could have been hurt. Thanks for the call, okay. Dave. Let's go to Mike in Hall. Mike, you're on Beyond the News. Uh, hello, Brian. Hello. Uh, listen, uh, let me premise before I start talking that uh, I'm not a big fan of Trump, nor am I a big fan of Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. I believe that the United States is in serious trouble because both of the candidates are fat crazy. They're, they're, they're less than stellar, one might exactly, say. Exactly, exactly. But having said that, now I listen to the news 
nonstop during the day while I work. And uh, it seems to me that the media is destroying – well, they're all against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. From from uh, and I'm talking about every media. And in fact, today I've been I've been listening to CFRA all day, and the young women that are reporting on air uh, were saying stuff about uh, Donald Trump and and the baby that was crying, and they're making him look like, oh man, he's a baby hater. You know, it's it's well the it's the insane. baby move was a dumb move by him. He shouldn't it, have done it. It was it was a a, a stupid move. But figure one thing. Uh, Trump is, uh, a, a, you know, probably very nervous. Also, even though he's got a cool demeanor, uh, this is a big deal that's going on. So he'll he'll he will stumble because he is not a professional politician. Uh, he will say stuff uh, that that makes him look sometimes uh, a little silly because he again he is not a professional politician. Uh, the, the politicians that uh, that shine like Hillary Clinton. Uh, they're used to all of this. Yeah, and he'll, uh, Trump, he'll, Trump is not. And you know what? And that's part of his charm. He's he's straight out. He's telling you exactly what he what he wants to do. He's telling you exactly what he thinks, and people are gravitating towards him because of that. The media is just every single little thing that he does. They amplify it nonstop, talking about it on air everywhere. And when Hillary Clinton does something. You barely hear about it. She's roped off media. She's uh, staged fake campaign stops. She has called the uh, grieving mother of a Benghazi hero a a liar. She's called the, uh, the the families of dead veterans liars over Benghazi and crickets. She's it, the darling of the media. Truly she is. Can, she can, she can do no wrong. And Donald Trump is this big evil. Uh, you know. Uh, this big evil guy that will destroy everything. I think- uh, you know, I, I don't think he's a, I don't think he's all that much of uh, a great candidate. But he can't be I, as I, bad I, as I, they claim. I, he can't be as bad as they claim. He right. can't. Got to run. Anything f- they say about him is just awful. Got to run for one last call. Thank you, Mike. Let's go to uh, Goldie Gamari calling in. Goldie, you're on Beyond the News. Last word to you. How are you doing? Ah, uh, fit to be tied as usual. Oh, God. My last word is actually going to be talking about a new topic. Uh, I just wanted to bring it to your attention because I haven't really heard too much about this in the media. So um, last week, the Ontario government decided to cut off access uh, and stop paying for all opioids. Um, now, opioids are obviously drugs like morphine and things like that. The issue is that um, opioids are used for palliative care. And for people who are uh, near the end of life and are uh, cancer patients, mm-hmm. and I've talked with several doctors, and they seem to suggest that the reason they've cut off funding is that if people wanted to pay for this medication to decrease the suffering of their loved ones as they're nearing the end of life, they would go bankrupt. And they think the underlying decision behind this is uh, to sort of nudge people and families towards uh, choosing to terminate their own lives. Well, that's news to me, so I'll have to check that out and, yeah, uh, if you and could, see if what's you could, going uh, on. Yeah, if you could look into that, because Ontario would be the first province in Canada to actually cut uh, funding for all opioids. And uh, if you look at uh, the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians, 
Mm-hmm. The uh, director at large has said that he is appalled to read about this decision. So uh, this is something that for some reason has uh, gone under the radar. Doctors are complaining about this, and uh, it, it really has no uh, – it, it doesn't matter whether you are for or against uh, termination of life. I've heard doctors on both ends of the spectrum say that by cutting the funding, it it's will sort push of, people there. Exactly. All right, Goldie, exactly. thanks for the call. Thanks for the tip. We'll look into it. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. If we didn't get to you tonight, my apologies. We'll try again tomorrow. And you can always email me, beyondthenews at CFRA.com. That's beyondthenews at CFRA.com. Follow me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Back again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. As always, remember, I'm on your side.